For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Long Form Podcast. My name is Patrice Peck. Hi, Patrice. Uh, it's Max. Hi, Patrice. This is Evan. And this is uh, Aaron Lammer. Welcome. Glad to be here, y'all. We are, we are glad to have you. Um, Aaron and Evan and I were uh, thinking, have been thinking about uh, what to do on the show this week. And uh, we were thinking about it last week. And then Friday morning, uh, Patrice, you sent all three of us a message uh, saying, well, you can tell me what you said. I just wanted to let you guys know that I'm a big fan of the podcast. But I also realized, you know, we're having all these conversations now about the lack of diversity in newsrooms and in media and, you know, black journalists are starting to hold these media companies accountable. And so I had had some thoughts on long form in terms of um, the diversity and inclusion. So long form podcast, y'all have definitely covered a wide range of black journalists and just journalists in general. However, I did recognize that there was a lack of black journalists from historically black publications. Um, I realized the, the black journalists who were featured in your podcast were black journalists who are often featured in many interview series in media. And so I thought you guys had a really cool opportunity given your platform to really highlight and spotlight some black journalists who have been doing and still are doing amazing, innovative, disruptive things in their industry. And that what better time than now, you know, to have those people on to tell their stories. Well, we certainly appreciated that note. And, and we certainly agreed. And then you and I got on the phone and um, had this idea of, uh, of you hosting this week's show. Yep. And we wanted to know who you wanted to talk to. And so you and I started talking and you had uh, these fantastic ideas. And uh, why don't you tell us about the first person who is going to be on the show with you hosting? Well, the listeners are in luck because I chose Kierna Mayo. Um, I first met Kierna Mayo when I was a journalism 
a graduate student at NYU, shout out Studio 20 program. Um, she was at the time the editorial director of Ebony.com, the digital um, sister of the historic Ebony magazine. Shortly afterwards, Kierna became the editor-in-chief of the print magazine, also Ebony magazine, right? And so this was amazing, an amazing time. She was creating all these disruptive covers. She had the Bill Cosby cover where there was a photo of him smashed, just really um, speaking to what was happening, not only in black culture at the time, but also American culture, right? Because those are two in the same. Um, But then I realized as I was speaking with Max about Kierna, I was like, wow, you know, she had a whole rich career before I even knew her and I didn't know much about it. I knew she had been at the Source magazine and I knew she had um, launched and become editor-in-chief of her own magazine, Honey Magazine, at the crazy age of 27, right? Um, So I was like, yo, we, we gotta talk to her. She's a visionary and she's a pioneer. Patrice, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've been working on recently. I'm a journalist, currently freelancing. I'm all about writing stories for and about the Black community. The whole reason I became a journalist was to provide a voice for the voiceless, particularly my own community. Um, Yeah, so I launched this newsletter called Coronavirus News for Black Folks. Um, This newsletter was my way of making sure that the Black community was given a comprehensive source of news as it it was directly related to them in the coronavirus. So please, you know, check that out. It's at www.coronavirusnewsforblackfolks.com. And you had a op-ed recently about some of the subjects you were just speaking Mm -hmm. about uh, in the New York Mm -hmm. Times. Yeah. So long story short, you know, we're all journalists. We are already stressed. It's 24-7 news cycle, right? However, You know, these two pandemics, the coronavirus pandemic and police brutality and overall systemic racism, both of those pandemics are disproportionately impacting the black community, a community which I not only report about, but I'm a member of that community. Right. And so I'm not within a vacuum. I I have friends and family who have been directly impacted or infected by COVID-19. You know, a majority of essential workers are black and brown people. My own mother is a nurse. And so I'm reporting on this. I, I, I'm i seeing, you know, all these instances of black suffering and black death. And, you know, we are human, you know, I'm, I can't speak for all black journalists and I don't want to because we are not a monolith. However, I know I've been speaking to a lot of my peers and it's really been hitting us a lot, not to mention the, you know, media is not within a vacuum. We have systemic racism and institutional racism within these media companies. And so there's just a lot happening for me and my peers right now. But um, like I said in my essay, we're going to keep on keeping on because, you know, we we are very passionate about what we do. So, Well, we're so excited to have you guest hosting and we're thrilled that you were able to get Kiernan to come on the show. This is an amazing conversation. And uh, if you want to start an amazing conversation in an email newsletter format, there is no better way to do it than with a MailChimp newsletter. I don't know if people listening have noticed 
I'm no longer on social media, but I am thinking about starting an email newsletter. So uh, goodbye to everyone who ever followed me on Twitter, but uh, hello to my future MailChimp newsletter. Here is Patrice with Kieran Mayo. Kirna, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed by me. Hi, Patrice. I am beyond thrilled. I'm just excited and open, and I know this is going to be a great conversation. Thank you for having me. So when I first met you, I was a journalism graduate student at NYU. You were the editorial director of ebony.com and you know I was doing a thesis for my graduate program with my girl Quazy and so I came to you with this idea to have a multimedia agency ebony.com would be the case study and you were totally down didn't know me or Quazy but you said come through you know you put us up in the conference room you took us so seriously as we gave our presentation And listen, let me, I will never forget this because I was like a mid, early, whatever, 20-something-year-old black girl journalist, like approaching this legacy, um, historic black publication. And I was like, yo, like she's being so respectful of us as the sort of like peers and not even like oh, these girls who, you know, I'm giving them some of my time as a sort of like charity case. Like you asked us thoughtful questions um, and it was just a very great experience. But, you know, what I'm realizing now is that I didn't know that much about Kierna before Ebony.com, right? I didn't know your legacy and your history. So that's kind of where I want us to start off with today. Right. Oh, Patrice, that was a rich memory for me because I remember how brilliant you both were. You know, it stands out to me that you you showed up with a spirit of willingness and invention. Mm. But I, I'll tell you, Patrice, my entire career has been predicated on my ability to communicate with young people, understand, observe, be led by young people. And part of it, I think, is one part just my natural kind of makeup. The other part is that I started my career at a very high level at a very young age in a world where there wasn't much precedent for what I was doing and the space that I was coming out of. So a lot of people didn't take me seriously. And I was, in fact, quite serious. And I have learned, you know, quite selfishly, that you cannot win if you don't have the sensibility enough to know to make sense of a Patrice and to make time for her when she walks through your door. This may be my particular truth as a Black woman in media, because there have been so few of us before me and even after me even considering your generation, you know, the next kind of wave of young Black women to fill up this cultural space with actual storytelling. There still could be a lot more of us than there actually are. So your first instinct is like, pay attention to this young Black woman who is taking her 
craft seriously enough that this is her thesis. Also, know what you don't know. I mean, having Jamila by my side was um, just an infinite gift. It just never stopped giving. Her brilliance, her perspective, her friends are my friends now. It's, it's just, I much like I feel sorry for women who say they aren't friends with other women or they, they just can't get with other women for whatever reason, um, I feel the same way for people who are middle-aged and older who don't have that space and that relationship with young people. It's like, what a loss, such a loss. So I saw that purely as doing more of what I do and being gifted and also blessed because here we are. Yes, definitely. And so I want to touch on something you did mention, which was from a young age, you were at like a very high point in your career. So talk a little bit about Kierna before I met you. Okay, so that that first window of my professional life begins really early, right out of Hampton University. I was a mass media major. I wrote for the school paper. I was really disappointed in the politics of Hampton University, then as I am today. So there was a lot to talk about then. There were a lot of um, unresolved kind of questions around race and power that the institution being as conservative as it was, was unwilling to take on. So in some respects, I tried my hand at finding my voice and identifying that our plight as Black people in this country, our specific plight as Black women in this country, um, deserved a certain kind of lens and attention that I knew the adults around me weren't providing. So... When I didn't get the internship at Essence Magazine, I've told this story before, but it really is foundational to my entire story because I only wanted to work at Essence Magazine. I only wanted to be at Essence Magazine. And just for context, you know, obviously there's no internet, Mm -hmm. but there's also no anything else you think about through a modern lens when you think about Black female iconography and imagery today, like none of those things existed, including your faves on the cover of Name Your Magazine, Vogue, L, whatever, your girl was not there. So it's a different time. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. I sound like a very old person. Now, I had no business being into Essence in this respect. It was for my mother at that time. It decidedly, yeah. it wasn't yeah. a college woman's book, is what I'm saying. Yep. Essence at that time was for someone who was more my mom's peer, yep. a 30-something at that time, a 40-something at that time. I was 20, 19, 18 even, fantasizing about being in that space. Um, but it's also because culturally, that was it. Yes, And it's important to realize that we were just like every generation of Black women has like these same kind of core desires to be mm-hmm. seen and to mm-hmm. be recognized and to discover her beauty and mm. to feel her power and to be loved by her people. Yeah. So all the things that we crave and desire and need today and affirm on Instagram and every yeah. other photo was absent, save, yeah. save yes. for essence. So give that sister her due for life. All the flowers. Yes, all the Trail flowers. Trailblazer. Because it predicates it all. Yes. So went out for an internship, didn't get it, couldn't believe it. My life was completely over. 
I was like, why did I go to college? This mm-hmm. shit is a joke. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I had a girlfriend who was a media major like me, and she told me that she had had a friend that she went to high school with who was starting this rap magazine in New York. And he's a white boy, but you'll like him. <laughs> like, none of it, none of it made sense. Hip-hop magazine, white boy. Like, I was like, okay. Okay, I'm looking for a job. I'm actually looking for a job. Thanks. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, so, long story short, I go to the source, and I meet with the publisher, And, you know, history kind of was made. I actually was hired to be on the business side, and that lasted, like, all of a month. And the source was very experimental. It's really hard to understand that time now because Mm -hmm. things have evolved so much. But it was really a first. You know, we had serious rock and roll journalism, if you will. Of course, there were the Rolling Stones and the the spins of culture. And the New York Times had, um, you know, music writers that were celebrated at the time. But nothing was really dedicated to hip hop, music and or culture, which by extension meant nothing was centering the black youth experience. And we had a lot to talk about. So getting to the source really was a place that I blossomed. I grew up really quickly. I went from being associate editor to senior editor ultimately. And, you know, we were a very small shop and there was a lot of opportunity and exposure. And I was on panels at Harvard. I was, you know, just kind of blowing up overnight. They called the source at the time the Bible of Mm. hip-hop culture and politics. It was really that celebrated and exalted as the preeminent reference. So in the absence of Google (laughs) and all the other sources that we have to kind of track down information, there was one reliable source at the time, and no pun intended, that's where I was. So it was a real platform to launch into my honey years. The big takeaway from my source years was that we needed women to really center the idea that Black women... And really all women who were participating in this hip-hop experiment deserved and needed a space and that we needed to protect ourselves because no one else was going to protect us. No one was going to tell our stories. No one was going to tell the truth. No one was going to be critical and honest about the impossible world that Black girls and women occupied at that time especially those of us who are just a very close part of the culture, really shaping it. Um, And so Honey was born. I got with my best friend from college, Joyce Lynn Dingle, who's quite the visionary and has far more of a a work ethic than I've ever had. And she was just like, girl, now. Mm -hmm. And we knocked on every door for years and years and years and years and years. And we pitched ourselves to publishers and we lived in Kinko's and we made copies of business plans and Finally, we got someone to listen to us and take us seriously, and they immediately told us, don't bring your lawyers, and you don't even need your business plan, because what we're interested in doing is an idea very similar to this, and we will do it with you or without you. And that is how Honey begins. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of learning for me in my early years. So I'm 27 when Honey begins. So I'm now the editor-in-chief of a national magazine that's also creating a new genre, if you will. There were several publications that kind of followed in that space, but beyond publications, hashtag Black Girl Magic is a direct descendant of Honey Magazine. Mm. So we were the inventors and the center 
and the audience and the creators, and it made for a really special moment in time in terms of my personal career trajectory, but also, I think, um, what we were able to put into the culture. Okay, so I want to backtrack. So I feel like each chapter of your life is its own book, is its own memoir, movie, television show. Okay, so let's get into the the source years, right? Talk about maybe, do you remember like your first day or, or some of the earlier days when you first started there? What was that like? And, and what was the like music at the time just to sort of get give people the soundtrack? Right. So it's early 90s hip hop. So like we're coming off of the public enemies of the world, the native tongues mm-hmm. of the world begin to um, take space. There's Queen Latifah as an artist, yeah. you know, not as the mogul that we know her as today, an actress. Um, there's a lot of consciousness in the mm-hmm. music. So, you know, we're like the second wave of generation woke, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. We begin this, you know, obviously before there's that kind of language. We yeah. are, we have a consciousness. We, a lot of us identify with black nationalism. Mm. Um, I proudly tout my generation because we were so maverick. We were yes. so out front. We didn't have a lot of, I mean, yes, we were kind of sandwiched between the civil rights generation and millennials. Yep. But those are vastly different worlds. And just imagine like trying to shape culture from that place. Yeah. You know, public enemy is being blasted by young white kids all yep. across the country. But the political landscape isn't really reflecting that. L.A. is burning. Yes. It's 1992. West Coast hip hop is about fuck the police. Right. You know, so a lot is happening in terms of the conversation about Black Lives Mattering. Yes. But what was lost in those early hip hop conversations was an insistence that Black female lives matter, too. Yes. Um, So, again... Those source years created the chops and the need, from my perspective, to create something because it hadn't already been done. And then, you know, again, being a Black woman, the ways in which culture and society and professional life, particularly outside of schools, outside of higher education, force you into a one-track life, existence, mindset— and I and I, I definitely feel that, that millennials and Gen Z have just just done a tremendous job at pushing back on that I, idea of a single identity, right? Mm, yeah. But this was very much the landscape. So I think a lot of Black women felt that they had to choose who they were publicly. You couldn't have a low natural Caesar like me on yep. Monday and on Thursday have a blonde weave down to your knees. That Why wasn't not? a. We didn't feel a lot of flexibility in how to present. It was almost like you chose a side. Either you were the video vixen or the woke girl. You yeah. couldn't possibly be the woke girl who wants to twerk at the club. You know what yes, I mean? Like it wasn't yes. really. Even though we all were all those things all the time. The presentation of it was very different. Very different. And and that's because we're talking about a predominantly male, black male yes. space. Yes, yes. Where they were, of course, mimicking and 
copying a lot of what they learned from dominant male, white male culture, right? So there's Mm -hmm. this parroting that happens. And we, again, Black women caught in the crossfire. You know, we're we're there because we are hip-hop, not just because we like it, because Mm -hmm. we are it. Yes. Right? Yep. We grew up on the same streets. We listened to the same music. We danced in the same clubs. We kissed on each other. The boys didn't do it without us, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But the narrative was that it was by them and for them. For us, by us meant black males when we were Mm -hmm. talking about examining hip-hop. So what we were able to do at Honey Early was what I see a lot of happening in culture today. There's just pushback. There's clarity around the fact that our point of view is not only like entertaining, not only like commodifiable, it, it's the way forward. It is mm. the truth and the light. It is the liberatory politics for all of us. It mm. is the way you find direction and leadership, like enough with centering the boys. I wasn't talking like this at all then. Yeah. But yes, I was, if you feel me. Yep, I feel you. So for our listeners who I think is very important, especially for our listeners who aren't Black, to understand all mm-hmm. of this is going on in your head and, and you're processing all of this and keeping this in mind as you are doing an actual journalism job. Absolutely. You, listen, this isn't some theoretical, you know, you're a scholar and whatnot. You're also writing pieces, you're editing. So t- let's talk a little bit about the technical sort of... uh roles that you played also as the source? The thing that I that was kind of fascinating, you asked what the source was like, and it mm. was really like that early MTV real world kind of vibe, even predating that. Like, we here we were, the black girl from Detroit and the black girl from Brooklyn with the Jewish boys from Harvard, <laughs> with the black kids from Philly, with the downtown kids from Seoul. Like, we just... The Lower East Side, we we were that. Yeah. It, was, it was a live experiment. But the thing that we all had in common was a certain intellectual curiosity. Mm. This was the first time that any of us had felt our own power in the absence of anything but our own power as 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds, 24-year-olds. So the journalism is being born out of creative, interesting, probing young minds who read a hell of a lot and are starting to notice that every single thing related to hip-hop culture is factually incorrect. Mm -hmm. When we read it in any other publication, they get the shit wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's a big sign. That was really instructive in terms of you asked about the early journalism years for myself and I think the entire team there because none of us had worked any place else professionally as journalists some of us had been on our school papers um but i don't think any of us had come from any journalistic institutions i yeah i, I don't know a hundred percent but i just don't recall yeah. that being the case yeah so but again i mean you're talking about half of the staff being ivy league educated so yeah. we're not and then the other half being HBCU educated. Yes. So we it was probing and like we totally fought about race, mm. class and gender every mm. single day. Every single day. The things that we're talking about now, we were talking about then. 
different language, different social circumstances. But for the most part, the same things dominated the conversation. But so you asked about the journalism. It starts for me with just the art of the interview and realizing early on that I had something. I always enjoyed people and I was always a conversationalist. Um, But when charged with asking questions, I felt confident in asking questions other people wouldn't ask. I don't maybe that was because we were protesting George Bush being our keynote speaker at Hampton University, a historically black school. You know, it comes from your whole life, like kind of put together, but not unlike yourself and not unlike I think the best journalist. It starts with like natural curiosity. And um, and then I, as a young black girl from Brooklyn, New York understood that I was disenfranchised and Mm. disempowered by way of America. Mm. And I felt very much like an advocacy journalist, if you Mm. will. Things that journalists today would run away from. No one wants to be called. So so let's unpack that because I feel like a large part of the reason some people, including even myself, like I'm still struggling navigating that. I think that's because a lot of times it's the white institutions and journalists that say it's 100 percent that, you know, what I'm saying they say, oh, be objective X, Y, Z. But y'all not objective. No, no. And I mean, we all understand that, you know, objective is subjective, right? <laughs> no, it's it's 100 percent a reaction to this idea that somehow there's a lack of professionalism, authenticity, understanding of journalism as an art, understanding of truth-telling, mm. non-biased truth-telling, like meaning the ability to, and I quote-unquote non-biased, be able to remove oneself yeah. um, from the story. It still doesn't mean that one isn't advocating. Yeah. I mean, historical white institutions have been advocating for white society since their inception. Period. That's what it is. And, and, and by the way, it's not a bad word. Yeah, Like telling the truth about a particular slice of life is what my career has been. Mm-hmm. That slice of life started as young, about young people who were partaking in hip hop culture. Most of them were of color. Most of them were poor. So that was a perspective. Yeah. So if you begin to tell the stories of those people at that time, that begins to have an advocacy feel and and Mm. taste and touch not even with a consciousness to it just because this is a lost voice this is a lois point of view it is not in the mainstream it is not being centered no one is telling it so the mere act of shedding light journalistically in places where there has been no light before is advocacy Mm. sorry journalists (laughs) sorry all you impartial fair and balanced folks i'm very sorry about that yes okay okay so, 27-year-old Kirna, launching editor-in-chief of her own magazine. To launch a magazine was not like starting a website or a blog. No, no, Talk no, about no, no. that. What was that like? I can't even imagine, especially as a, a young Black woman at that time. Like, were there haters? Like, how were you feeling? Girl, so much was happening at once. I mean... One, we had to grow up and become executives, so to speak. You know, now you're pitching advertisers. Now you're in rooms with marketers and you're thinking about the business of media a lot differently. So 
you know, those early source years, I began to understand the construction of independent publishing, how this thing comes to be, and certainly became empowered to understand that you could do this as a young person. I just watched this young kid do it, so I know it's possible. But again, when we got to the publishers, the eventual first publishers of Honey, they were very disinterested in being partners with us. Mm. And they were very clear that if we didn't have a certain amount of capital, they were not going to partner with us. So Honey began with Joycelyn and myself on staff as editor-in-chief and editorial director of the brand. Of course, this is a brand that would have never existed without us. And we worked 20-hour days. I mean, it was a very small shop that existed within this really strange publishing world filled with like weird older men who had very weird ideas about what black girls were and weren't. And then we had XXL magazine that was happening down the hall. Oh, wow. um, Slam magazine that was being run by like some white kids though. Dope. But <laughs> so there's all this culture stuff is coming out of this very non-black publishing house. Very non-black publishing house is the one that's figured out this eye on hip-hop culture and where it lives. It lives in sports. It lives in music. It lives in the girl stuff. So that's where we were. Um, But we did a lot of fighting to... We were underfunded and we were understaffed and we were disrespected and we were challenged every single day. We fought every single day for Honey to be and to flourish and to exist. Mm. But you can't stop a movement, mm. right? Yeah. You can't. You No single publisher is going to get in front of Black Girl Magic Period. in a modern context. And it's coming to fruition. And people are finding community. And we're starting to realize, hey, it's not just me wearing my hair like that. It's not just me who likes this and that. It, you know. And so when we identify this and all this community surrounds Honey, it instantly becomes bigger than itself, it instantly becomes even bigger than myself and my partner who founded it. Mm. Um, and that was a lesson, it's a really important lesson that I had to learn um, as not just a journalist, but as a creator, that we did what we set out to do. The goal wasn't to create something that would be eternally dependent on us. The goal was to inject something into the culture that was going to be bigger than us. And it took me years to come to terms with that because we left very acrimoniously and it was sad and it was really tragic in a lot of ways in terms of what happened to our team and our dreams. And just like I think about what would have my life been if Honey had lasted 10 years and the Internet had happened. Wow, you know, just a lot of different things I asked myself about. But hindsight is twenty twenty, and it was a dope-ass time and a wonderful experiment, and it was carried on by several editors after me. Never had a publisher that wasn't a male who misunderstood, at best, Black yeah. women, hated Black women at worst. Yeah. Um, never had ownership that really loved us. Yeah. But everybody wanted to exploit and sell us. Mm. But they all had a vision about what that was supposed to be. Yeah. And um, really didn't let Black women take the lead in the ways that we probably needed to in order for this thing to last forever. So we got what we could out of it, and we we kept it moving. So what happened, though? So before Honey Becomes Honey, like I said, we were pitching this idea of this hip-hop-centric 
black women's women of color mm. publication. Yeah. Um, you know, urban was the language at the time. You know, we all we argued about that, and it was yeah. like, do we use it? Do we not? It was like yeah. we all hated it, but we understood that white folks needed to hear something bigger than black culture. Like it was just yeah. a lot of figuring it out. Yeah, creating Again, new languages. Creating and, yeah. new languages, exactly. And so having had all of these doors closed in our face was not surprising, I don't think, but I think because we were so passionate about it and so naive in terms of believing what was possible. Like, how dare us believe that we could even do this thing, really? Mm. You know, but audacity, we did. Yes. It was audacity. Yeah. It was exactly that. Yeah. Um, again, back to the whole youth thing and why young people will always matter most of all. Yes. Because fucking audacity. Yes. So we got all these doors slammed in our face, including, I will just say, none of the Essence folk were interested. Mm. I will just say none of the Condé Nasts were interested. I say that with an S on the end. Just tag a publisher. Yeah. They were disinterested, right? So we went to the then publishers of Vibe. Okay. Who were black men. And they kept our business plan for a really long time. And in the end, passed too. So that was our last hope before we ended up at Harris Publications. And so by the time we did this deal, basically giving away our ownership, there were no other options. That was the deal. If you wanted to see this thing come to light, this was going to be the way in. But the whole time we were like, we're going to raise some money. Within a year, we're going to come back. We're going to buy this thing. They don't even know what this is. They don't even mm-hmm. know what the hell this is. Yeah. We're just going to get this. We're going to, like, we were strategizing the yeah. whole time. Within that time, what happens? Honey blows up. Yes. In that year that we're doing our thing and creating these quarterly issues and kind of like piercing the culture at a very high level. Now all the hot boys want to be down. What time period is this? This is, so late 97 is when we are crafting and shopping and making it happen and dreaming it and pitching it. 98 is when it goes into production. And we begin to work on this thing. And then a team gets pulled together through Harris Publications. And we have to teach them what does it look like if you are trying to get mainstream advertisers to take black girls who listen to hip hop seriously. Mm. What has to happen in that room? So that's what they're getting from our 28-year-old selves, our 27-year-old. That's the education that we're giving the white boys who want to go sell this without us, but then find out that they can't. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) And as an editor in chief, I learned very quickly that that whole line between church and state Mm. gets very blurry if Mm. you're not very careful and if you're not funded. So who's church and state in this scenario? Church and state would be editorial okay. and publishing. Got you. Right? The, the money, the business end mm. versus the journalism. Got you. Like it almost is non-existent today in digital media. Got like you. we pretend that it exists, but mm-hmm. Mm. Um, like I can spot it from across the street. Like the piece that came out of the conversation, that came out of the pitch, that came out of the advertiser mm. needs like whatever. But because mm. um, it happens every day, all the time. But so we were... Desperate to get this magazine to come to fruition, we gave away all our rights, and within a year, we'd blown the magazine up and got a lot of attention around the magazine 
including, apparently, unbeknownst to us, some of those early publishers that we had pitched had gone behind our backs to do a deal with the publishers to buy the magazine. One of those publishers, the publisher of Vibe, did a deal. So when we got a potential investor who was very skeptical about the nature of the existing deal, but was really invested in us, my partner and myself and the team that we developed. They were the ones who found out that the magazine was being sold. We didn't even know. Wow. We found out that not only was the magazine being sold, but the magazine was being sold to the same people we gave the business plan to that held it the entire time. These boys are still in the culture today. These are my peers that are multimillionaires today in the culture. So don't get it twisted. Wow. <laughs> it's, and this is what being a black woman yes. in entering this, this media space from this place is. Yeah. It's very much, and I, it is not unique to say that like a lot of my male peers have been able to translate that particular culture mm. into a very lucrative life 25 years later. Yes. Whereas those of us who were doing the work and who were actually interrogating the space and who were creating new spaces, a lot of us who happened to be women, yeah. many of us didn't have the same fate. Call it what you will. The lucky and smart of us have been able to navigate uh, this intersection, mm -hmm. you know, where media meets culture meets brand. I mean, that's been my whole story without even thinking about it. Um, just by default, I'm creating culture as I'm covering culture. You know, it's a, it's a dual identity. Yes. And it's unique. So you said you found out that Honey was being... Sold? Sold, right. So uh, we found out that Honey was being sold. It was being sold to the guy that we trusted the most, the one that we kind of hoped and imagined that the deal would kind of happen with initially before we ended up with the publishers who ultimately did the magazine. Um, and it was being sold. And then they basically came back to us once they were in the clear to purchase the magazine and scared our investor away. Because mm -hmm. our investor was like, whoa, 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 I didn't know the thing was up for sale and that there's already all this dealing. And wow. so, like, the work that we had done to even conjure up a money talk with someone who might have gone to the table to help us buy this thing um, was completely annihilated almost overnight. And so then I was pissed the F off. And so then it was on, you know, yeah. then it was personal. And then it was on. And then it was very acrimonious. Like I said, this person essentially sold brand honey as the center of his new media company so he pitched media companies and got millions of dollars as an investment to a new media company predicated on my work wow. you know so yeah. it really was jarring to understand how behind the eight ball like here i am still working for a paycheck yet whole yes. ass companies are being developed and invested in based on my lens. Mm. But when he began raising money for his company, he did it knowing that he was going to have me, my partner, our team, never thought once about it that there would be this beef, this break. Wow. Thought that he would just be in this leadership role again. And, you know, having been the man at Vibe and during the Vibe years, yeah. heyday years, that we would just kind of roll over. But, of course, we didn't. Mm. Um, so it ended up being that he gave us a probationary 
deal if you want to come you you have to work 90 days for your title like something that was wow. like so out of the blue asinine yeah that i was like in order for this to not turn violence mm. or seriously yeah i don't even i really don't even want to it was that bad yes it was yeah man oh man oh man oh man oh man we were just so angry and irate the bigger lesson in what I was speaking to earlier was that it was for us to learn that honey was never about us. Mm. Honey was never about us. There were jobs for us, you know, and they were great jobs. And it was fun and it was culture changing. And we did a lot and we learned a lot and we met a lot of folk. But honey was to keep creating space for all of us. Mm. It needed to happen. Yeah. Whatever tragedy we had to go through, whatever heartache, whatever business pains, whatever losses we suffered. And there were, it was that. It was all in the name of the greater good. I can say mm. that now yeah. in hindsight. Mm. I can definitely say that now. And having you just talk about sort of that... The business of um, your baby, honey, right? Because that was your child, your creation. Really quick, just for context, because a lot of people, especially a lot of non-black or non-brown people in media, I don't think they understand. Like me personally, I didn't have any like safety net sort of like coming into journalism. And it was never like a lucrative profession or aspiration for me I wasn't like oh I'm about to get in here and make money become editor-in-chief like I wanted to get in to give a voice to my community and tell the stories that I couldn't read about right but then nobody tells you like okay you you're probably not about to make a lot of money like you it's gonna be difficult to support yourself while you're having to jump through all these hoops as a black journalist as a black woman journalist particularly one in new york city where the cost of living mm -hmm. is just getting crazy so oh my gosh yeah. give the people a little context about you like did you come from a journalism background what was your socioeconomic status like especially while you were editor-in-chief were you balling like no um so where I come from, no, I don't come from money. I would say I come from working class means, but a middle class sensibility. My mother was a civil service worker my entire life. And my father was a very small business owner, as in he was his sole employee. But my parents were are proud people and believe in art and have always been conscious, you know, so... I definitely had that as a foundation, which gave me a certain amount of emotional security, if not financial security. You know, I definitely respect and hear um, stories of my peers and people older and younger, Black people, people of color mostly, who are often discouraged from opportunities and career paths that people don't imagine as lucrative. And that's just a basic kind of economic calculation that Black parents are making. Because it's hard to be mired in poverty. It's hard to be running in circle. It's hard to live check to check. No one wants that for their now educated child, yeah. you know. Um, and I do think that that is something. I mean, here we are today talking about Black Lives Mattering mm. and new audiences giving that validity and space to be a truth, a, a full sentence, that mm -hmm. Black lives actually do matter. But in recognizing that and, and for that to not just be like a wave of platitudes this time, yeah. we have to have these basic understandings about how 
not even the starting line really is. So to your point, I don't think that my generation is much different from the generation of young, struggling black and brown writers and artists and and journalists of today, particularly if you're independent. If you're not what I call funded by an institution, which basically means has a job, If you are freelance like yourself and brilliant, freelance like myself and brilliant, there are no guarantees. Mm -hmm. There absolutely are no safety nets. And, you know, my 25 years of culture has certainly, I think I have created a means, literally by creating honey specifically, and the source for sure, but by creating honey, I think there's a direct path from that work to how the aesthetic of black female identity is sold every day to the tune of billions of dollars. Looks, style, every part of who and what we are, people try to parse apart and actually purchase for themselves. Mm. And, but I'm not rich, you know? So, so there's, there's that, you Mm. know? I, I just think that the dedication to the storytelling, the dedication to uplifting humanity by way of sharing lesser-centered perspectives is the way that we all kind of give free. Mm-hmm. So if there's any, I mean, it's super kumbaya of me to even talk like this, but for me, they really, I've had to allow myself to feel that I am being paid by more than money. That's what I'm trying to say. For my validity, for my sanity, for everything about me to be okay. For me with my huge ass ego and my intense love of nice things to be okay (laughs) is to have to give value to something more than transactional cash exchanges for my Mm. work. This work for us as Black women is more. It just is. Yeah. People see the value, but they're able to monetize and commodify it because just like one of your many iconic Ebony Magazine covers said, America loves Black culture, not Black people, especially not Black women. Okay. Speaking of Ebony... That's where you and I... Oh, that little thing, girl. That's where you and I began <laughs> this beautiful relationship. So, right. How'd you get to Ebony? And when was that? I got a call in 2011 from the then editor-in-chief, Amy Dubois Barnett. Mm-hmm. And she was looking for someone to develop and run Ebony.com. So I was skeptical because mm. I was skeptical of Brand Ebony. Mm. And um, I felt that it had not really... Well, I, I wasn't really keeping up on Amy's work. Gotcha. You know, when, once I kind of saw what she was doing, I was like, okay, this is definitely... Actually, that's what made me do the deal. Like, yeah. she was taking this thing in the absolute right direction. Mm. But for many years, Ebony had been a non-factor. Mm-hmm. And I just found that unacceptable as a Black journalist. And I mean, you know, people take issue with broad statements like Ebony being a non-factor. Like, how could mm. the largest magazine speaking to Black people in the country be a non-factor? But from a personal perspective, as a journalist, I felt that it wasn't up to par. And Mm. I had watched an entire 
generation of black respectables, as yeah. I call them, ignore and dismiss hip hop culture and the young people that came with it, mm-hmm. which meant that there was an inherent divide between us. Yes. You do not see the world like I see the world and you're disinterested in disruption. And that's what I'm here to do. Mm. That's what it means to be part of the hip hop generation. Like, that's yes. why I say y'all didn't invent shit. Yes. We've been doing this. Yep. We've been disrupting. Yep. Right. Yep. But it was just... I don't know. Coming to Ebony, I had to do a lot of soul searching because I had to, again, dig back into my bag of tricks and Mm -hmm. believe in myself where there was no proof that I was going to necessarily be successful. And here I have tried to carve out a personal brand that's rooted, if not in magnitude, Mm. in quality, if not in like volume yeah. and impact yeah, yeah and i crafted that on my own without a lot of support or institutional help or validation mm. outside of my own very black girl very hip-hop community yeah you know so coming to ebony and like taking a chance of turning something that i had looked at as kind of like whack yeah even though like i said in fairness to amy it truly had begun to turn around. I had just stopped paying attention. And then, you know, when I saw what Ebony.com looked like, and it was like the first website ever. (laughs) And it it was really, I said, whoa, we have a lot of work to do here. Meanwhile, the Hearst publications of the world were already starting entire digital divisions. And Black publications were like, do we really need a website? All right, well, get the girl who did the other thing and bring her in here and, right. and see what she can do. And so then, but but what happened was that this coincides with Ferguson. Yes. This coincides yes. with the inception of Black Lives Matter. Yes. This coincides with Trayvon Martin. These are the, so my journalists, the Ebony.com that we created yeah. was an Ebony.com that then became the voice yes. of so many people that you read now and yes. listen to now yeah. and think of as thought leaders in this entire space and time. That is Ebony.com, so Yes, it wasn't the Times. It wasn't the Atlantic. It wasn't all these fabulous places where some of my favorite writers exist. It was little old <laughs> Ebony.com. And we were on the ground in Ferguson, and we were just doing the work because we were the ones, again, the establishment places were scared of the perspective. And when you say Black Lives Matter, exactly how black and what lives and how much mattering do you mean? You know what I mean? Mm. So we we really were ahead of the conversation and brave. And Ebony leadership, I think, at that time was shifting and looking for something new and scared of what we were doing and there was controversy and we made mistakes and we got called out and I grew as a leader and I I really had to learn a lot and again this is still an institution so now we're back to it being more than just your little it's not your blog project it really isn't because it carries a legacy behind it And so this legacy brand, if you want to reinsert yourself back into a conversation, you got to be prepared for everything that comes with it. So it was a crash course in uh, leadership for me and in navigating 
very challenging political waters with very young journalists. I was about who, to say, you yes, like... you don't have magazine chops. They don't have print chops. But they were the blogging pioneers, too. Like, oh, like I yes. say, Jamila. And, like, oh gosh, I remember... Absolutely. Da- like, Damon, correct? Damon, Damon Young was what, also... Damon started with such... Yeah, mm-hmm. um, Michael mm-hmm. Arsenal also Michael Arsenal Michael Arsenal mm-hmm. like and it, it was such Zerlina a great Maxwell yeah Zerlina um, mm-hmm. just, like, it's just the, like the tribe uh, of winners yes. it really touched Ebony.com yes. most of y'all did yeah so I'm proud of that work and I yes. feel like that when I look back on my career as a as a journalist and sometimes a, when I'm around journalists working journalists I don't even refer to myself as journalists because okay. I'm deferential okay. enough to know that there are actual Wesley Lowry's of the world and I don't claim to be that. But I do claim to be someone who has, sometimes by design, sometimes by circumstance, created spaces for Wesley Lowry's of the world. Period. Definitely. And so that, and I lay claim to that. So so you were Ebony.com and then, right. boom, transition to editor-in-chief. Yes, so I started off as editorial director of Ebony.com. I got promoted to VP of Digital. Okay. And then there was a change in editorship on the print side, and there was a gaping hole. Yes. And everybody was like, girl, you know this is your time. And again, for years, I had tried to be the editor-in-chief of Essence, and that fell through a few years before, and mm. I was like number two in the runnings. And yeah. So all these years of getting close, getting close, and like knowing that that kind of visionary leadership is my calling, yes. creating the space, like being right there at the right time, and also being maverick in the perspective, mm. like breaking the rules of magazine journalism, breaking all the rules, yes. but first knowing them, first knowing them. And not right? just That's, to break them. Not just for the sake of breaking them. But because they demand their calling to be broken. Yes. But first you have to know them mm. and master them and understand them. Like that's a whole nother piece, which was a challenge in editing my first real wave of digital writers who had not had any yeah. real rigorous yeah. work. They had not done any long form. They had not gone through any research process. Yeah. So there was a lot of like opinion yeah. without a lot of the rigor. And so I was trying to find a way to help elevate Ebony.com in that respect and still allow the space for the less seasoned person to yeah. say it like it is. Because you you can see something. You see things in people. I can tell that. Like you see things in individuals. And it's interesting because the conversation in, in more recent years in journalism, especially at like historically white staffed publications has been like Mm -hmm. how do we get diversity like where do we find these people and you know you have young black journalists you know such myself at the time and my peers we're applying for these positions at these different publications whether it's a historically black publication or whether it's the times the atlantic and our resume says one thing and our clip says one thing but oftentimes we hear like that we're not at that level yet or like you were saying like we're not seasoned or we don't have enough experience but it's like I found that it requires people like you who can see the potential and are willing to invest the time and effort to train. Yes, it does. I mean, you're right. It does. And that's why we can only hope that um, newsrooms across the board, multimedia newsrooms are filled with people who understand intangibles. Mm. Because if you're just looking for accredited schools and like pedigree yeah 
you know, if, if that's all that resonates with you, you're going to miss out on some amazing minds. Mm. So, yes, you, you I do think it's a skill that, you know, certainly I'm not the only person with it, but it's sorely missing from a lot of mainstream places. And you can tell because you can tell who's not there. You can tell mm. how many people of color they don't have that you clearly are engaging with on Twitter. <laughs> like you're like Say the that. level of brilliance is through, what do you want? Comedy? Period. What do you want? Academic? What do you, what do you want? You know what criticism, I'm saying? So, right. Criticism? Yes. What, what do you want? Because we got it. Comedy and criticism? Right. Because like whatever you're looking for, it really exists. And yes, in today's world, that talent is probably going to come with a need for a certain amount of development, which isn't to say that it isn't worth the investment. Period. Yeah. You know, you there's some things that can't be taught. Mm. Right. Mm hmm. There is such thing as being a naturally good writer. Mm. That goes a really long way. Mm -hmm. But if you're a naturally good songwriter, mm. you might be a great storyteller. Yes. Who knows? Yeah. I'm interested in the conversation. Yeah. And if you're writing enough in social spaces that is attracting audience yes. and you're making some damn sense, yeah. please come talk to me. Yeah. What's your take on X? Yeah. And we need more of that in newsrooms where people can take chances on folks that don't have journalism degrees per se yep. or didn't come out of X, Y, and Z establishment press. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, things are changing, but they have to change faster. And we mm. need a new cadre of intellectuals who are willing to deconstruct intellectual norms, like mm. things that we hold true in our minds mm -hmm. about society as journalists, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. And now I'm speaking to a broad audience and I'm speaking to, to non-black journalists yeah. especially. Okay. And so, Boom. The gap was there. It was your time. You stepped into it. Editor-in-chief of the legacy that is Ebony Magazine. Please go from there because I, that's one of the reasons that I was like, we got to talk to Kierna. If I'm going to talk to anybody for long form, I got to talk to Kierna because you've been at the highs, the lows, every iteration, whether it's from a Black perspective, Black woman's perspective, hip-hop, culture, politics, news, dot-com, print, like everything so let's talk about but i bet when you pitched me <laughs> mm, dot, say, dot, it. Dot, say it no ellipses <laughs> you said you bet when they when you pitched me what that all the things that you knew about me no one else knew mm. mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. you know and how many white journalists were paying attention to what was happening on ebony.com for those five years yeah how many people like the unbelievable amount of reporting and opinion writing coming out of a new generation of thinkers that would then grow to become an entire movement. Yes. The first to cover Black Lives Matter. Yes. The first, you know, really they're at the intersection, the internal debates about the formation. Yes. That's how on the ground we were. Yeah. And how much space we made. And by the way, these are also characters that you find now coming in the office. People are here because we're a gathering spot. Yeah. You become so much more yeah. than just yeah. a, a media outlet. Yeah. You know, we're a safe space even. An authority, like, back. Like, yeah. that's what it looks like when something in culture has your back. Mm. That's Ebony.com in those years. That's what that looked like. Yeah. But also was true to the art of 
accurate storytelling mm. and challenging systems through the word. Yes. We did a lot of kick-ass stuff during those years. And so then I become the editor-in-chief, yes, because we... The editors left. They needed someone. It made sense for me. It seemed like it was my time, like I said. But what I had already come to understand was that the limitations of Black media are real. The advertiser resistance, at least when you're using an advertising model purely like we were at that time, is real. It's the same thing that I read. It's like PTSD. Like it was the yeah. same thing that happened at Honey. It was the wow. same thing that happened at The Source. Like when mm. I look back at all of my life in these black magazine media spaces, we were always, no matter how good you were, yeah. proving yourself, yeah. gaining sponsorship consistently was just tough. Yeah. And I was aging in my career and growing in my career also and just really feeling like the ceiling. For one, going to print in, what year was that? 2015? Yeah, Something like that. Yeah. Felt regressive. Mm. My career survived because I know how to morph. Yeah. My eyes are on the tomorrow, you know, not yesterday. So having been the VP of digital and then going back to Mm. print didn't seem like a smart career move. Yeah. Even though it had always been my deepest dream was to be the editor in chief of a print publication, it didn't seem smart. Um, and what I had come to understand about the inner workings of the Ebony's of the world wasn't that sexy and exciting. Yeah. So it was like, do I, do I not, do I, you know. So I finally did it and we were broke and strapped and challenged and we were being challenged internally and we were challenged externally. And a lot of the genius just came out of necessity. Mm-hmm. So I say that to say some of our standout covers, the one that you referenced, and also the cover that got me my first Talking Heads yes, spot on CNN yes, yes, I was that. that infamous now <laughs> Cosby cover yes. where we had a image of the Cosby show, a press shot of the Cosby show in their early years underlaid by what looked like broken glass. And the, the point of the break begins right over Bill's face. And so there's all of this kind of layered metaphor visually. And it was our quote unquote family issue because it was Thanksgiving. And so when you're in magazine media, you understand those holiday months to be very specific. And when you're in a lifestyle book, you do a lot of plays toward advertisers that are interested in promoting family related things. Yeah. So we turn that thing on its head. Yes, and you did. Um, and that's what we did. But that cover cost us like zero dollars and forty two cents. You know, wow. with the exception yeah. of paying for the creative direction. Yeah. But the image itself was free. Yeah. And like so we just we figured out how to be inventive yeah. and to to also break away from like celebrity yeah. the Come celebrity on. chase and Elevate black news. Like black life is happening. Things are happening in black America that the whole country's talking about. Yes. And we're just gonna put your favorite celebrity on the cover. Yes. That's just our job. Yes. Just because that's been our job. Mm. So we were we were interrogating all of that along the way. Yeah. So it just worked out for us yeah. that black celebrities had really turned away from black press. Mm. I mean, good <clears> luck <throat> getting Whew. I talk mean, about that little please, please, wanna, please, please, please. Well, I I don't want to because I want to <laughs> be friends with all these girls. <laughs> But all your faves, every single one of them. The celebs. Okay. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the men too. Mm. And 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 I and 
I think a lot goes into that decision. So I do not stand in judgment. I will just state it as a statement of fact. You know, now that Elle has discovered black people and Vogue has discovered black people and Vanity Fair has discovered black people and Time has discovered black people, black magazines and black publications are fighting everyone. And so you end up with press shots of the Cosby show. Yep. And then you win almost accidentally, but also because you're dope. (laughs) Because, again, that goes back to us as a people, like, making something out of nothing. Ding, 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 Yes. Yes. It's it's journalistic ingenuity. Media ingenuity. Yeah. Which is what an entire generation of bloggers have been. And that's what all you guys are. You that's what you were when you walked into the office at Ebony. Like it's it's all of that. Yeah. But it's also it's so wonderful. And it there's so much loss that it's why I'm really happy to have an opportunity to talk to this audience in particular, yeah. people who take journalism seriously, yeah. and, and just really to honor and celebrate your work and the mm. continuum and how it things have been elevated. Mm. And you are given opportunities now to be edited by tremendous editors in tremendous places. And yeah. we should all be granted those opportunities. Yes. But when they're not there, yes. I want this audience to understand what you're missing. Mm. It's huge. It's huge. And so any institutional journalistic home that wants to be a part of the future Mm. and wants to be on the right side of history beyond platitudes Mm -hmm. and beyond marching this week, Mm -hmm. now that Mm. we've all had a wake-up call, it's about recognizing that some of us come by way of different pathways, no less valuable and no less worthy of exploring for how they can help instruct the future of your brand, of your magazine, of your media outlet. Mm. And what do you say to the people listening who are like, well, we don't have the budget or we don't have X, Y, and Z to sort of get these people in the door like you're saying? Well, is that the truth? I mean, I guess that's my first question. Is it, Are we starting from a truthful place? Mm. Because we, we really have to examine the question of will today. Like, really... What we're talking about right now, when you see the entire country locking arms and saying, we agree, Black lives do matter, the way we will measure whether or not we are actually all in agreement will be what we had the will to confront and change, Mm. right? So your budget is also tied to your will. Mm. What matters? What are you investing in? What can you find some extra dollars for versus what you can't? But the other thing, I'm talking now more about well-established places that, um, granted, all media is figuring it out. And just from a business perspective, it's a hell of a game to be in right now. I don't envy any publisher anywhere unless you're Facebook, (laughs) actually the only publisher. Yeah. But... If you have the ability to bring in new voices, if you are a place that knows that you could rob a little from Peter to pay Paul, Mm. it's incumbent upon you to think differently, to challenge the ways in which you've recruited in the past, to challenge that which you deemed credible or worthy of giving an opportunity just to have do you know how much I've learned do you know how much didn't ever make it to page a digital page or a print page Mm. 
that was just conversations that I had with smart thinkers, yeah, young writers, people who maybe weren't up to par, yeah, but did plant a seed that mm. gave me an idea for a package down the road, or someone who you do need to watch develop, but is worth keeping a relationship with, yeah, because later on they're going to be writing for the New York Times and yeah. blowing up, and people that run hot podcasts are going to ask <laughs> them to do things like. Those things, that's real. That's real, yeah. That's real. So, you know, I think in this new day, mm. since we're all brand new and we're all woke and we're all Black Lives Matter, that we all should do the work of challenging how we got here. Mm. How did we get to a place where so few of us are in newsrooms? How did we get to a place where Black voices are still established Black journalists, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, are still complaining about racism in the newsroom? How are we here, folks? Let's all be in that conversation. Yeah. And if you only want to have that conversation with your A-list journalists, mm, then you're going to miss out once again mm-hmm. on a lot of like remarkable thought and perspective and people who are willing to go deep and go places that you would never imagine. Yeah. I just believe that. You've seen it firsthand, so you know. Yeah. You got your start at the source, right? I really want to know your opinions or thoughts right now on the music, uh, hip-hop music landscape right now in terms of the publication. So, like, we have, I consider a complex, fader, paper, right? Mm-hmm. All three of those were print brands Mm, mm -hmm. that figured out their digital play. Okay. Led by white boys. Yes. What what are your thoughts on that? Because to me, it seems like the national and even international conversation around hip hop and black culture from a music perspective is owned by and led by white men and white teams, predominantly white teams. Yes. I mean, that began during my generation. Mm. You know, that's what we were pushing back against. But because I'm divested, so I don't, I I feel like a fake, like I'm a fraud. I can't really talk hip hop. Like I sometimes want to pretend that I can, but I can't really. You know, I have three teenage sons, meaning that I'm not, like you, you have to respect the cultures of evolving. So it's not enough to have yeah. known artists 20 years ago. Yeah. It's not enough to have, like if you're not really paying close attention hmm. I pay attention now because I have, like, proximity to my kids' conversations. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just kind of peeping what they care about and Mm. what they talk about and who they listen to. And it seems just as saddled with all the, like, messiness that Mm. it's always been saddled with. Yeah, yeah. Except now, I think the capitalist piece is, like, through the roof. Yes. Where we were all rooting to see a day where a Jay-Z was a billionaire. Yes. Now every other kid is a half-billionaire. Yes. So that's a different paradigm altogether. But the idea that young white men in particular have centered themselves doesn't surprise me. And people become experts on all sorts of black cultural expressions very quickly. And suddenly you have no space in the conversation. Now, I don't know that, again, I'm I'm kind of repeating back what you're telling me is the case. I've felt that trend. I've always seen the complexes. And listen, these guys do good work. Let's also say some of what they do is 
good. Okay. But the fact that they are dominant voices yeah. when there's all these other people making the culture and partaking in it yeah. and there's no way in, it just feels to me like a scary recreation of the old way. Yeah. It's scary to me too. That's a perfect yeah. word. And I, I don't know if people outside of our community or, or, or people who aren't super young and don't really see the exploitation um, that's happening. It's, re- it's just really scary to me. Yeah, and and it, uh, definitely do, kids don't have the same level of consciousness or even perspective, right? Because when I talk yeah. to my peers, it's like, I, like I said, I'm 32. I was coming of age during like the new millennium, so I saw like the the mid to late 90s. I saw when we were like peak sort of black mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that all the like UPN and the black TV and movies and music and the neo soul and hip hop and all that. Like I didn't realize that was going to be taken away. I didn't realize that wasn't the way things were always going to be. Right. You know, whereas right. now there's a lot more. I don't know what the word is. I want to say appropriation. Right. And, and And so I think a lot of younger people today they don't really understand how much has been taken from they their culture not. and community and how much it's being sort of um, regurgitated back towards them. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. And they don't understand the power they have in that. Right. And they don't. And they, how could they? Yeah. How could they? They really have entered the conversation at a whole nother point. Yeah. Like my kids don't remember a time before a black president. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. just, just to put it in perspective. Yeah. You know, so things really have mm. transformed and they really like getting your first million isn't a headline. Yeah. Like there's a different yeah. kind of of conversation. So and the things that have been commodified and like kind of completely consumed, absorbed, stolen yes. by larger culture and then spit back out at you. It's like. More of your culture than not is that. Mm. My kid was really just trying to articulate this the other day because it's dawning on him little by little. It's like, oh, man. Or even when he hears music, just the idea that music could have a history beyond the song, you know, Mm -hmm. or beyond the cheesy commercial that's using the Jackson 5's ABC to sell trilogy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, 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 when you finally realize that there was a song that existed, yeah. you're like, oh, mg. Mm. So, um, so you know, I'm careful not to like be a finger wagger, right? Because right. every generation is kind of faced with its own yes. hurdles to surmount, and it yes. is for young people to wake up around this fact. Yeah. Oh, you're totally. Your culture is totally being bought and sold back to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you're not laying claim to anything. And if what I'm hearing about who's even covering it, yeah. who's telling those stories isn't yeah. even you. Then, yeah. But I'll, I'll say my kids have a completely different relationship yeah. to the idea of hip-hop culture. Yeah. Like, we created hip-hop culture as resistance, mm. right? Hip-hop culture for them is the norm. Yes. That may be the thing to push back against. Mm. Wow, that's the word. Oh, I love it. Okay, so what's going on with you now? So, okay, so right after Ebony, I joined I1 Digital. I had a two-year run there. It was exciting. Um, not as fruitful as I'd imagined, but we did create this really cool site yes. called CassiusLife.com, mm-hmm. Born Unapologetic. Yes. <laughs> and it was more of the same, like finding those same young people and yeah. putting them in a petri dish and saying, y'all go make something. And led by mostly black women. 
and 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 absolutely yeah. led by mostly black women yeah. and queer brothers and sisters yep. and just being yep. super duper progressive, intentionally progressive, intentionally like on the right side of the matter and the wokey wokes just <laughs> having fun and yeah. like unpacking culture yeah. and and news. It, it wasn't a deep journalistic dive, mm-hmm. but it was I think an important continuation like I said of the work and it's still around and it fills an important space because it it allows for the fact that all young people aren't being flighty and light about life, about yeah. the world around them. There is introspection and there is examination and there are questions. Mm. So there is a group of people who don't want to be lulled to sleep. And that's what Cassius was about and who that's for. And then I ran all of these other sites when I was over there, too. Yeah. So, again, my executive chops kind of meeting all my other stuff. I've just not had a, a neat kind of career it's always been experimental yeah. by design yeah. I'm like a I'm like jazz <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um I'm just improv all the way <laughs> so what am I doing now still mm-hmm. improving yes so I am the showrunner and head writer for a new live production that mm-hmm. happened the inaugural happened just before we were shut down yep. for corona mm-hmm and it's the Lena Horn Prize for Artists Creating Social Impact. The work that we do there is basically to recognize people in culture who have taken their art and exploited their art as a platform for change. Mm. In this first year, we honored Solange yep. Knowles. And she was just, oh, so spectacular. The producers and creators were, are the same folks who do the Mark Twain Prize. Okay. So it's very much in that ilk. A a single person is fated, it's celebrated, Mm. is lifted up, his or her work is examined, peers come and celebrate. But in this case, because it's not about comedy, but it is about social impact, we wanted to explore, like, to know Solange is to know her reverence and appreciation for Black artists, yeah. Black art, and the Black artist experience, the artist way. There's a famous book called The Artist's Way. Yeah. Solange kind of embodies the Black artist way. Mm. And people wanted to celebrate her, yeah. let me tell you. Yeah. Like, if you could hear Common's words, if, if you could hear. And then, so, yes, we we just tried to hire as many talented people from all walks of life to bring this expression together on a level that really no award show has ever been. This is the first time that a a major award is being named after a Black woman in this country. Mm. So it's, again, another first. Mm. So I'm excited about that. And being a showrunner, a live production showrunner, is more than a notion, okay? <laughs> um, more than a notion. Yeah. It's more than just bringing your executive hat. It's yeah. more than just bringing your journalist hat. It's like now I'm marrying all my other stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'm just excited and seeing where life takes me. I'm working on my my personal writing, my fiction writing, yeah. my screenplays. Yes. And I'm in conversations about a lot of really exciting stuff. And I'm trying to make carve a new path for myself. Yep. I don't want to just be like that person in the room that's just talking about the brilliance of young people yeah. because people who are no longer defined as young, per se, don't have talent and mm. dreams and, yeah. and things to share. Yeah. Absolutely the opposite. 
especially when you're talking about black women. <laughs> we go on. to our graves not having told it all, yeah. said it all, yeah. and taught it all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's always more. But I do want to be someone who's not afraid to reinvent. And I do think that is the purview of young people. And I borrow that gleefully, you know. And, and right now I'm in my reinvention season. I, you know, I'd like to come across a big lump of cash while I'm at it. Um, but I want to earn it and I want to change the world while doing it. So that's me. That's where I am. I am you, Patrice. <laughs> oh, my God. And Black Lives you. Matter. <laughs> you just poured so much into me. I just want to thank you. You're welcome. I want to thank you, too. I want to thank you for just existing, you know, and being and just reading your piece the other day. I just it just brought tears to my eyes that you have this perspective and that you you're making it. You're doing it, baby. You're doing it. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. So don't stop. Don't ever stop. Uh, Okay. well. I love you, and everybody follow Kierna. Just stay tuned, right? Because as you can tell from this conversation, she's going to do even more amazing things that we can't even comprehend because she got the vision, okay? so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Patrice. I appreciate the opportunity. I really do. Thank you for listening to Longform. I am Patrice Peck, and the show is co-hosted by Aaron Lammer, Max Linsky, and Evan Ratliff. Janelle Piper is the editor. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Kierna Mayo for coming on the show this week and spreading and sharing your brilliance and genius with us all. My Twitter and Instagram are at SpeakPatrice, and you can find out more about my writing and my newsletter, Coronavirus News for Black Folks, at patricepeck.com. The show will be back next week.